This podcast is on partisan warfare, the age of global power competition. What do I mean by partisan? Specifically, a supporter of a party, government, ideology, or cause. What do I mean by warfare? And I'm not joking here. It's important uh, that we understand exactly what I mean by warfare. I mean, literally, so I'm looking to the legal and formal uh, definitions from Oxford English Dictionary. Warfare is a conflict or competition. So what do I mean by global power competition? Vice, great power competition. We normally hear great power competition. I use the word global to widen our net to countries that some scholars don't consider quote-unquote great powers, but affect regions in the world. Examples include India and Brazil, with their populations, resources, and so much more. Iran and Egypt, the latter with the most Arabs of any country on Earth. Indonesia, with more Muslim populations than any other country. Powerhouses of Japan and Germany, who some scholars still today consider to have far more enduring global strategic influence than Russia, despite Russia's aging arsenal, and China, despite China's exploding economy because Germany and Japan have values and business practices that stabilize markets and continue to endure despite market upticks and economic collapses. Their endurance and resilience in education and legal systems make Germany and Japan truly global powers in the minds of some scholars. So that's just an example of what I mean when I say global power competition um, to include regional powers, to include People have great effects. So we're not just talking about Russia, China, and the United States. And going back to the term partisan warfare, I chose the term to denote the actors on all sides of a battle space of where global power competition occurs. This applies to everything from low-risk stabilization missions to countering violent extremism missions, all the way up to and including actual active kinetic guerrilla warfare. Essentially, I'm using partisan warfare to mean what some scholars used to call political warfare. This latter term is hotly debated, so using partisan warfare is a sort of get-out-of-jail-free card for me. I would challenge us, though, to think of partisan warfare, or let's call it political warfare now in this podcast, not as gray zone operations, not as hybrid warfare, but instead as just international politics as normal, or the norm where humans as political creatures live, always between a fictional and theoretical so-called peace and a fictional and theoretical so-called total war. If we take to heart uh, and to use Dr. Sean McFate's interpretation of 4th century BCE India's Katilia, who we read last September, that politics is war by other means, an inverse of Clausewitz's hypothesis, then perhaps then even great power competition is just political warfare or just international politics as normal. The lessons from the Max Boot reading uh, can be equally applicable to most competition and conflict when global powers are in the stadium of a third country or region. Thematically and theory-wise, much of the study of guerrilla warfare can apply to how we can think about conducting information warfare. That is a strong foundational narrative, being highly flexible, and going past the tired tropes of typical dime education. In seminar on Tuesday for Lesson 14, we will have a small group case study along with some questions. It refers to the announcement of the troop withdrawal from Afghanistan 
that's supposed to occur this September. For those who are new to the topics surrounding Afghanistan, so this includes issues such as Chinese and Russian and Iranian power plays in Afghanistan and Afghan neighbors. Of course, Iran is an Afghan neighbor. Well, so is, uh, so is China, but influencing its other neighbors. India's influence, importantly, numerous violent extremist organizations, numerous insurgencies, numerous tribal coalitions that are fighting, a Kabul government that has little influence in most of Afghanistan, geographically speaking, a quasi-mutilated Diobandi schools with tens of thousands of uninitiated Taliban student foot soldiers in Pakistan, narcotics trade, stabilization missions, clan warfare, intelligence challenges, communications challenges, and influence challenges. Uh, so for those new to Afghanistan, we will have a Reader's Digest of the major players and issues, a short handout, if you will, that we hope you find helpful. You're going to be asked to chisel out a foundational narrative. Okay? I didn't say create, I said chisel out a foundational narrative. Foundational narratives, they already exist. It's a matter of you finding them, uh, perhaps uh, taking different parts away and burying it raw. This is a core belief that already exists. Perhaps it hasn't been described well yet. Perhaps it's dormant and hasn't been expressed yet. Think of any narrative plan as a tree. The foundational narrative will be your entire root system. The stronger the roots, the taller and wider your sub-narratives, or what I'll just call narratives, are. Of course, the foundational narrative is the root. The narrative plans and execution, they are the branches and the trunk of the tree, what's above ground. You'll be asked to recommend stories to disparate audiences, so to narratives that are basically not foundational narratives, but sort of the sub-narratives, if you will, which I just like to call narratives. You're going to be asked to recommend uh, a narrative plan, if you will. Perhaps you're going to be asked to focus, hey, what's your narrative plan for China, for the Taliban? to perhaps clan militias fighting and dying in insurrection against the Taliban as I speak. Uh, perhaps to U.S. and allied wounded veterans, to Putin and more. And of course there is really one interconnected global information environment arguably. So if you have a story for U.S. and U.K. wounded veterans, for example, we must assume that story or that narrative will almost also immediately hit the airwaves and be exploited all over the world. And any story to the Taliban will be picked up by <clears throat> small hometown newspapers in the United States as well. And yes, those small newspapers uh, still exist. In some cases, they thrive. In addition to a strong foundational narrative, you'll be expected to look at beyond limits, ways, and means, and strategic flexibility. For beyond limits, we mean beyond limits to standardized or standard dime education. Nine-nine out of a hundred times a narrative plan will not be a public affairs officer or government office developing strategic narrative, just writing out a narrative. Uh, perhaps we can execute a narrative plan by, with, and through legitimate subnational governance systems that are trusted, perhaps through faith leaders, businesses, artists, more. Perhaps you will find campaigns already underway. This is a best practice. Uh, and all we really need to do is subtly amplify or simply get out of the way, report, and observe. For flexibility, first, a strong core foundational narrative will allow you to do more and be flexible in your information strategy. If it's short and simple, you'll be able to recognize or develop narrative plans for disparate audiences fairly quickly. 
Or perhaps you want to take more of a marketing approach and use test audiences. So this is where your flexibility comes from. I would not recommend that for this case study. Uh, I don't think it, it's, uh, uh, as we'll talk about on Tuesday, at least in my seminar, it's not uh, particularly appropriate. But that is one way that you can gain flexibility for the narrative plan. So I also want to get rid of some terms and some words. I want, I want us to try to exorcise them before we come onto campus or dial in Tuesday morning. So please try to avoid using the following terms um, or use them to a, uh, uh, keep it to a minimum. Uh, message, messaging, IO. IO is a tactical staff coordination position. But mostly, what I don't want to hear is what's the message, instead of deep thought and dialogue on what core foundational narratives already exist that reflect reality, that reflect power, that reflect identity, that reflect purpose, that reflect meaning, and that reflect the audience up front. Uh, and no, I'm not actually going to get angry if you use these terms, but I'm definitely not going to buy you that coffee or beer I owe you. Just all, all silliness aside, though. All you need for this case study is the course. Um, each taught lesson, so that's 12 lessons thus far. The first lesson was an admin, considered an admin lesson. Each lesson has direct relevance. So from population analysis to the study of intelligence to information and global power competition to persuasion to stabilization to trust. I think you'll be greatly helped by bringing the course syllabus and any seminar notes you might have to the lesson on Tuesday. I think for this last podcast, for this last taught lesson of IWS, um, I say last taught lesson because of course lesson 15 next week, that comprises our student presentations importantly. So there won't be a plenary or a lecture or something along those lines. Uh, I think that I want to go back to what we discussed in early September. So in many ways this course is kind of, we're sort of ending where we started but hopefully we have a lot more value, or we can get a lot more value out of the idea of narrative because of the case studies, because of the different ideas that we've toiled with over the past year. So what is a narrative? Um, and I'm going to review some of the things I said in September, but I'm also gonna add in a few, a few new ideas as well. Okay, according to Steve, Corman, there are as many theories of narrative as there are theorists. Uh, and to make matters even more complex, a narrative is as unique as each village or neighborhood in substance and style and the mean to transmission. You'll find that only locals are fluent in the visceral, the logical, the rational, and the irrational narratives that exist um, that truly uh, reflect identity, which I'll go over in a second. Narratives reflect locals' aspirations, it reflects their challenges, it reflects their meaning. But there are four common means or commonalities between many definitions, certainly not all, but many definitions over the last 2,000 years. And so I'm really starting with Aristotle. The first of four is identity. Uh, a narrative reflects the identity of a community, of a nation, of a people. It expresses a group's accomplishments, challenges, and ambitions. It can comprise deep-seated ideologies, belief systems, history, and language. And it can emerge without necessarily conscious design. Number two, a strategic narrative may offer meaning. During developing events, 
a narrative allows a community to gauge meaning. It allows recognition amidst outsiders in neighboring communities. Through trust, words, visual motifs, and repetition, narratives naturally strengthen. Third, a narrative may comprise one or more stories. A story is much more than just a sequence of events. There should be meaning behind it. Uh, and if we're going to study the story, we want to study the content, the storyteller, the storytelling craft, the means of transmission, how it's received, how it's understood, and perhaps how it changes people's beliefs or deepens people's beliefs or simply uh, re-engages those beliefs. There's a lot of, throughout the last 2,000 years, and really well before that, but I'm just looking at literature from, from uh, um, basically Aristotle through today, there's a lot of debate over the importance of structure and plot. So we have a lot of folks who believe structure and plot are not very important. So I'd like to look to some popular contemporary authors. So like Stephen King often talks about how he distrusts plot. Um, F. Scott Fitzgerald talked about character is plot. So the character is the most important thing. Forget plot, forget structure, forget having a beginning, middle, and end. Act one, two, and three, etc. George R. R. Martin, if you if you enjoy his uh, books or um, the TV shows, I guess based off his books. Uh, he says, if all we care about is advancing the plot, why read novels? And if you go back to Aristotle, Aristotle claims that plot then is the first principle. In other words, plot is story. So you have a lot of opposing views. Um, and you can see this from some of the great movie makers even today, where you see that some of them are slaves to the plot. Uh, others are not at all. It's kind of driven by character. Um, in the case of like Martin Scorsese, he'll have a plot that'll end like 30 minutes into the movie, and the movie will just go on. Okay, so the fourth, in addition to uh, reflecting identity, offering meaning, and comprising one or more stories, a narrative may have be used with purpose. Uh, and that's oftentimes to uh, influence, to inform, or to persuade. Unfortunately, there's no formula, um, but there are some common traits for historically successful narratives and the um let's see one two three four five six there's six traits that i think are going to be of special importance for this lesson for lesson 14 and the afghanistan case study deeds coherence counter versus master narrative of course you want that master narrative you don't want to just counter narratives if you will reflection of audience credibility and then as one jumble, brevity, clarity, and simplicity. So short and simple. So deeds, coherence, master, reflection of audience, credibility, and simplicity, brevity, and clarity. So what is a foundational narrative? So I've talked about what a narrative is. Um, a foundational narrative uh, is something we talk about a lot, but sometimes I don't think we've actually in any lesson compared a foundational narrative to a normal narrative, or what some people call sub-narrative. Well, foundational narrative is just simply a special kind of narrative. Uh, specifically, it is a narrative that is to say it has a story, or comprises one or more stories, it reflects identity, it holds meaning, and it can be used with purpose. So it's a narrative, meaning story, identity, meaning purpose, that has already deeply affected a people's subconscious. That's the parts of the brain that actively create our world and allow us to think actively and predictably. 
Okay, so these foundational narratives are the ones that are emblazoned on our brain that allow the cognitive and social constructs and national mythologies and imagined communities. So go back to the Harari reading, for example. Provide shared understanding of traditions and values and deep-seated biases. It determines or affects most of our behavior and our decision-making. So specifically, what's the subconscious? So if, if there's a narrative and then a foundational narrative is something that has affected the subconscious. So why do we focus so much on the subconscious? Well, many influence information perception campaigns um, exploit the foundational narratives that are internalized in the subconscious. They play to the subconscious. This is very much what we're going to do on Tuesday. Or those plans, those campaigns, whether it's persuasion or informing or influencing, otherwise they're going to be pretty ineffective if they don't play to the subconscious. The subconscious internalizes in response to foundational narratives. So personal, family, communal, state, transnational, belief system values that shape how we see the world, often deeply impacted by so-called national tribal mythologies, cognitive constructs, imagined communities, etc. Hundreds of repeated and repeatable neurobiological studies on six continents over the past two decades suggest that between 65 and 90% of our reality, our decisions, our so-called logic and outlook is defined or at least deeply affected by our subconscious. I hope that's helpful. Thank you.